0: God, hallowed be thy name. Lord, we rejoice in who you are, in what you have said and done, and we thank you that we are your people by your grace, that we have been called out of this world, and that we have been gathered into the kingdom of your Son, into the kingdom of light. And Lord, this morning, as we consider these wonderful truths regarding your return and the gathering of the saints... Lord, we pray that they would comfort and encourage us, that they would cause us to walk in obedience and faithfulness, and that they would would help us to number our days aright, living for those things which will not perish. But let us be ones, Lord, who store up treasure in heaven. And Lord, I pray that those who would hear these things, that they would consider these teachings, and they would test them against your word, and that they would hold fast to what is in accord with it, And for myself, I ask that you would give me a wisdom and understanding, that you would strengthen my heart, my mind, and my tongue, that I might declare all that is in accord with the truth. And Lord, that if I should speak anything that is in error, that you would graciously blot it out from the hearing of these, your precious sheep. And we ask all of these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, like many of you, I was blessed to grow up in a Christian family with parents who instructed me regarding the scriptures and serving the Lord. And of all the many lessons my parents attempted to drill into my head as an obstinate youth, none needed more repeating than the importance of Christian fellowship, as I often complained about having to get up early for church, especially during the winter. Now, even so, My stubbornness never deterred my sainted mother, who would always reply, We do not miss church. Now, as you know, being part of the We do not miss church crowd meant also attending Wednesday night youth group. And to be fair, I found Wednesday nights far preferable to Sunday mornings, as you didn't have to get up early, it was generally more relaxed, and you got to spend time with people your own age. Now, Youth Group was, on the whole, a fairly enjoyable experience. That is, until they had us watch the Thief in the Night series. Now, for those not familiar with this series, it consists of several movies made in the 70s and 80s about people who missed the rapture and then had to experience the Great Tribulation. Now, as a kid, the idea of millions of people suddenly disappearing and being left behind to face the Antichrist, as well as scenes of Christians being sentenced to death by beheading, kept me up for several nights. And while the production quality of these movies uh, makes them today seem pretty corny, and if you doubt that, you can find them on YouTube, they were, to my 10-year-old self, very unsettling. Now even so, they did pique my curiosity about what the Bible taught regarding Christ's return and the rapture, and began asking questions like, will large numbers of people suddenly disappear from earth? And if so, will this be a visible or an invisible event? Which signs, if any, will signal Christ's return, and who will endure the great tribulation? as you know, believers have discussed these questions for years, and they're still debated in the church today as we eagerly await the coming of Christ. Thus, as we continue in our Divine Doctrines series today, we're going to examine what the scriptures tell us about the Lord's return and rapture as we seek to better understand the general timeline of these events. So to begin, let's open our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, and we'll begin by reading verses 1 through 14. Now Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you... There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Now, this passage begins with Jesus' disciples pointing out the temple buildings. And to which he responds by saying, Not one stone will be left on another, indicating the temple's coming destruction. Now, later, the disciples then ask Jesus about all these things while he's on the Mount of Olives. And thus, this text is part of what's referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Now, the disciples ask, When will these things be? And this really refers to the temple's destruction. And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now, as you know, the destruction of the temple would come to pass at the hands of the Romans in 70 A.D. However, the disciples' interest in the end of the age is likely linked to Jesus' prior teaching. And to study this more, let's turn back now to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Now, in this chapter, Jesus first gives the parable of the wheat and the weeds before explaining this parable, starting in verse 37 of Matthew 13, saying this, "...the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil." here. Now Jesus teaches here that the good seed, or wheat, that is the righteous, and the bad seed, or the weeds, that is the wicked, will grow up together, both now and throughout the millennium, which is this, the Son of Man's kingdom. However, there will then be a harvest at the end of the age when the wicked are gathered out of Christ's kingdom and they are thrown, into the fiery furnace, which refers to them being cast into the lake of fire at the great white throne judgment. Now, as we've discussed previously in this series, this judgment occurs at the very end of the age, just before the coming of the new heavens and new earth that are associated with the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the Father, as Jesus says here. However, the end of the age is really a prolonged period of time, which is also referred to as the day of the Lord, that starts with Christ coming on the clouds and ends with the great white throne, a period of more than a thousand years. Thus, as we turn back to Matthew 24, Christ's previous teaching in Matthew 13 about the end of the age is likely in the background of the disciples' question, about the sign of his coming in the end of the age. Yet, unlike in Matthew 13, where Jesus discussed what concludes the end of the age, what concludes the day of the Lord, in Matthew 24, he discusses what begins the day of the Lord, as well as the time leading up to this prophetic era. Now, regarding the general signs associated with his coming, Jesus begins by speaking of them as birth pains, indicating that like with labor pains of childbirth, these things will continue to grow in both frequency and severity leading up to his return. Now, the first of these birth pains is the increase of false Christs who seek to lead many astray. And this was already a reality in the first century according to 1 John 2.18, which says, Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And this passage illustrates the birth pains concept well. As John says, many Antichrists have come, and they will continue to arise, as Jesus promises, even as the great and final Antichrist is still yet To come in the future. Now Jesus Jesus continues here, saying they will hear of wars and rumors of wars as nation rises against nation, as well as famines and earthquakes in various places. Meaning such things will increase as we approach Christ's return. Even so, these are the beginning of the birth pains. For the end is not yet, meaning that false Christs, wars and famines, natural disasters and the like, all of these things that have been with us since the day of Christ until now are in and of themselves not definitive signs, but rather general conditions that will continue to proliferate as we grow closer to the Lord's return. In verse 9, Jesus says, they will then be delivered up to tribulation and put to death, for they'll be hated by all nations on account of his name. And because of this, many will fall away, meaning they will turn away from the faith. They will deny it. Furthermore, false prophets will lead many astray as lawlessness increases, as the love of many grows cold. However, we read that the one here who endures to the end The one who perseveres during and through this time of trial and tribulation will be saved. Finally, Jesus says the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to all nations and then the end will come. Meaning the day of the Lord that ends the age will then begin. Now, we should note here that the end of the age is related to but distinct from the last days which started with Christ's first coming. As we read in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, which says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Ultimately, the day of the Lord that ends the age is the final day or the final period of these last days that started with Christ's Incarnation. Thus, just as the last days began with Christ's first coming, so too will the end of the age begin with his return. So, in this opening section of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus gives us a thumbnail sketch of the timeline from the beginning of the birth pains through to the commencement of the end of the age that starts when he returns. However, as we continue in Matthew 24, Jesus will now go back and discuss an infamous and unique sign that was spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Let's read Matthew 24, verses 15 through 28. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation "...such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders." So as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. After discussing the birth pains, all of which have occurred throughout history and will continue to increase as we approach the end of the age, Jesus now speaks about something that is unique and distinct, something that has not yet occurred either in his day or in ours, and that is the abomination of desolation that's committed by the Antichrist. Now, as you know, this event is part of the 70 week prophecy of Daniel 9, which speaks of 70 weeks or uh, weeks of years, which is ultimately 490 years, decreed for Israel and Jerusalem to put an end to transgression and usher in everlasting righteousness. Additionally, as we study Daniel, we learn that the first 69 weeks of this prophecy have been fulfilled. And today we await the coming of the 70th week, a week that's associated with a covenant, according to Daniel 9.27, which says, And he, that is the Antichrist, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out. On the desolator. Now, while the ESV says the Antichrist will make a strong covenant, and the Hebrew word translated as make can really mean to make, strengthen, or confirm. And therefore, this covenant may be a new one that he makes or an existing one that he confirms or strengthens. Now, furthermore, this covenant that the Antichrist makes or confirms is with the many. And the many here is a reference to Israel. And it lasts for one week, which is seven years. However, while we're told this covenant ultimately begins the 70th week of Daniel, we are not given additional details regarding it, other than for half of the week, or three and a half years into this covenant, the Antichrist will put an end to sacrifice an offering, meaning these old covenant practices have been reinstituted in Jerusalem at this time. Additionally, in 2 Thessalonians 2, a text that we'll study more in a moment, we read that the Antichrist will take his seat in the temple and proclaim himself to be God, indicating that Israel's sacrifices and offerings at this time will take place in a rebuilt temple. Now, to be clear, these sacrifices do not mean that Israel is serving God in this day. In fact, we were discussing this quite a bit in, in Ryan's Sunday school this morning regarding Christ's supremacy over Israel and the church. Rather, these sacrifices and offerings demonstrate Israel's ongoing rebellion against the Lord. This is because the sacrifice of Christ has ended the need for these sacrifices, as it made the first covenant obsolete, according to Hebrews 8.13, which says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Ultimately, since Israel's Old Covenant sacrifices at this time are a rejection of Christ's sacrifice, they are an abomination to God. They are sacrifices he hates, ones that seem to likely be in view in Isaiah 66, 3, where the Lord declares, He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pigs' blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. They have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. Thus the abomination of desolation, in which the Antichrist puts an end to Israel's sacrifices and declares himself to be God, is not something that ends practices that are pleasing to the Lord. But rather, it's an event that ends sacrifices that are an abomination to God with a declaration that is an even greater abomination to him. Also, Jesus says when they see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, the reader is to understand Meaning that unlike the birth pains, which Jesus simply says will continue and increase, this event is unique as it marks the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week, one of the most pivotal moments in all of human history. This is because the second half of Daniel's 70th week is the time of the Antichrist's reign that brings upon the earth the greatest tribulation ever experienced. Now, since the Antichrist reigns from Jerusalem, those in Judea are told to flee to the mountains, and the urgency of their flight is so great, they're told here not to turn back for anything, as this tribulation will be unlike any other. One so great that if it were not cut short or stopped, none would be saved. Additionally, while this great tribulation lasts and a half years, which is the second half of Daniel's 70th week, and it will eventually engulf the whole world. The primary target of this persecution of the Antichrist at this time is Israel, and thus Jeremiah 37 speaks of this day, saying, Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it, a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. As we continue, Jesus again discusses false Christs and prophets as well as false signs and wonders so great they would deceive even the elect if that were possible. He warns when people say that the Christ has come and that he is in the wilderness or an inner room. They are not to believe them, for as lightning comes from the east and is seen in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man meaning his coming will not be secret or invisible, but be seen by all. Thus, what we've seen so far in the Olivet Discourse is that Jesus first gives us an overview of the birth pains that culminate with the arrival of the end of the age, which is the day of the Lord, before then going back to the abomination of desolation, an event that precedes the day of the Lord and occurs at the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. Regarding this unique event, Jesus says that when we see it, we're to understand the time in which we live, the days about which Daniel prophesied regarding the Antichrist and the Great Tribulation. However, it's also at this time, in the midst of the Great Tribulation, that the Lord will at last appear, as we'll now see by reading verses 29 through 31 of Matthew 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now here Jesus discusses the relief and blessing that his people will experience at his return, saying that immediately after the tribulation of those days, the days of tribulation which begin at the abomination of desolation, then the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heavens will be shaken. Now, these same celestial signs are associated with the coming of the Lord and when the coming of his day throughout the Old Testament. As we see in passages like Joel two thirty and 31, which declares, "...and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes." Likewise, we read in Joel 3, verses 14 and 15, For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Thus, just as Joel promised, these celestial signs will immediately precede the day of the Lord, so too does Jesus declare that these signs will immediately precede his coming. Ultimately, this is because the Lord's return is the opening event of the day of the Lord. And to study these celestial signs further, let's turn now to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. Now this chapter record records Christ opening the seven seals and starting in verse 12 of Revelation 6 we read this when he opened the sixth seal I looked and behold there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us to hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now notice that these same celestial signs, discussed by both Jesus and Joel, Signs which immediately precede the day of the Lord are seen here at the opening of the sixth seal in Revelation 6. This means that the time in view here is just before the day of the Lord, just before Christ's return, as it also is in Matthew 24. Indeed, these celestial signs are so close in proximity to the day of the Lord that those on earth declare that this day has come. Additionally, Jesus promises in Matthew 24, that when he comes, all the tribes of the earth will mourn, which is the same reaction of those here in Revelation 6, who asked for the mountains and rocks to fall on them, that they might be spared from the divine wrath that this day brings for God's enemies. Therefore, when these celestial signs that herald the day of the Lord are seen, it means the day of the Lord is not only near but it's also at last here. Now as we turn back to Matthew 24, Jesus says in verse 30 that the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And this imagery is also found in Daniel chapter 7. Furthermore, we read that then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and much has been written about what this sign might be. However, I think a better understanding of this phrase is simply that the appearing of the Son of Man is the sign that appears in heaven because the Lord's coming on the clouds is the first event that initiates the day of the Lord. Like lightning shines from east to west, this event, his appearing in the heavens, will likewise be seen by all. Thus, while the celestial signs indicate the, Lord, the day of the Lord is about to begin, Christ appearing in the sky is a sign that this day has, in fact, begun. Now, after this, we read that the Lord sends out his angels with a loud trumpet call to gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, this gathering of the saints, which is commonly referred to as the rapture, is also discussed by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 17, where he teaches, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Thus we understand that when we see the celestial signs, we know Christ will then appear. And when Christ appears, we know that we will then be raptured. All of the saints who have died prior to his coming as well, we who are alive at that time, all will be raptured and gathered together in the air to be with the Lord. However, Jesus also promises that his return and rapture will come at an unknown day and hour. As we read later in Matthew 24, as verses 40 through 40 tell us, or 40 through 44 tell us, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Now this speaks of the rapture. He continues saying, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, this text and others like it have led to a common teaching within the church, one that seems to be the majority view among evangelical Christians today, which is the doctrine of imminence. Now, this doctrine teaches that the Lord's return and rapture could happen at any moment. And to be sure, Jesus does promise here in Matthew 24 that the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour, like a thief. In the night. However, while we don't know the day or hour of Christ's return, does this mean that his coming will be in an unexpected way for his people? Will it be like a thief in the night? Well, to study this more, let's turn now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, starting in verse 1, in First Thessalonians 5, we read this. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Now in this passage, Paul says that you, and the you here refers to the believers in Thessalonica, to whom he is writing according to the opening of this epistle. Now these ones are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And he uses that same phrase, so he's echoing Christ's teaching. However, notice then that he clarifies to whom this day will come in this unexpected way. Those who are suddenly destroyed and do not escape. Ones like those we read about in Revelation 6, who ask to be crushed by the mountains rather than experience the Lord's wrath. Such people will be surprised by this day, wrongly thinking that they dwell in peace and security. And therefore, its coming to them is utterly shocking. It is indeed like a thief in the night. Yet for those who are Christ's people, for those who are his sheep, this day will not surprise us like a thief, for we are children of the day, not of the darkness." We are, by God's grace, numbered among the righteous, not the wicked. And because of this, the Lord's coming is not surprising to us, but rather expected. And it brings for us blessing, not destruction. Now, furthermore, the idea that this day would surprise us, that it would surprise the elect like a thief in the night, seems utterly at odds with the fact that Christ, the prophets, and the apostles all tell us much about this day, as well as how we are to live in light of its sure coming. Therefore, while we don't know when this day will come, its coming will not be expected to us, but rather to the world Even so, the fact that believers live in the expectant hope and assurance that the day of the Lord will come, this doesn't necessarily negate the idea that its coming could be imminent. So could Christ return and could the rapture commence at any moment? Could the day of the Lord come even today? Well, to examine these questions more, let's turn now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we'll read the first eight verses of 2 Thessalonians 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Now in this passage, Paul addresses Christ's return and rapture, saying concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. Now ultimately, the apostles wanted these saints to have clarity on these matters so that they were not misled by those who would say through a spirit, a spoken word, or even a letter that supposedly came from the apostles that the day of the Lord had already come. Now also, notice here how Paul sees Christ's return and rapture as synonymous with the day of the Lord. As he opens this chapter, first speaking of the coming of our Lord and our being gathered together to him, before then discussing the coming of the day of the Lord. He just merges right from those two ideas to the day of the Lord. And again, this is because the day of the Lord begins with the coming of Christ and our being gathered together to him. Those are the first events of the day of the Lord. Now, regarding this day, and thus also Christ's return and rapture, Paul promises it will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, as you know, the man of lawlessness is the Antichrist. And his taking his seat in the temple and declaring himself to be God is a reference to the abomination of desolation that was prophesied about in Daniel 9 and discussed by Jesus in Matthew 24. Paul goes on to say the Thessalonians know what restrains him, that is the Antichrist, now, and while we don't know for certain who or what the restrainer is, as it's, it's not identified, what we do know is that this restrainer is eventually removed. And when this happens, the lawless one will be revealed and ultimately then begin to reign before he's finally killed by Christ, which is recorded in Revelation 19. Now, ultimately, we have a very clear sequence of events here. As Paul says, the Lord's coming and our being gathered to him that begin the day of the Lord cannot happen until the Antichrist is revealed. And this is significant because while Jesus discussed birth pains that would precede his coming, like wars and natural disasters, these events, as we mentioned, have occurred throughout history. And therefore, they cannot signal that his return is imminent. However, Jesus said that when we see the abomination of desolation that the reader was to understand the prophetic day in which they were, in fact, living. He went on to say that immediately after the tribulation of those days, then the Son of Man will appear and rapture his elect. Thus, it's not until the abomination of desolation occurs that Christ's return and rapture become imminent, as this sign and only this sign indicates that we've entered the season of the Lord's return and no other prophetic events need occur before we see the celestial signs and he appears in heaven. Now in light of this, we understand then why Paul here also points to the abomination of desolation to assure the Thessalonians that regardless of what they hear and regardless from who they hear it, they had not missed the Lord's coming in the rapture as these things would not and indeed could not happen until after the revealing of the Antichrist. Now, along with the revealing of the lawless one, we read that the rebellion must come first It must come before the Lord returns. And the Greek word translated here as rebellion in the ESV is apostasia, which is where we get the English word apostasy. This, This idea is to turn away, is to fall from or deny the faith. Now this same reality was also discussed in Matthew 24 where Jesus said that many will fall away and betray one another as their love grows cold. However, to be clear, the apostasy here isn't committed by true believers, but rather by those who appear to be Christians, ones who are numbered among the visible church, but not among the true church. This is because apostasy ultimately reveals that one was never converted, and thus those who deny the faith ultimately deny it to turn away are like those mentioned in First John 2.19, which says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Therefore, as we consider this passage, we understand that just as Jesus promised his return and rapture would be preceded by the abomination of desolation, so too does Paul assure the Thessalonians, and by extension all believers, that Christ's coming and our being gathered together to him will not happen until after the man of lawlessness is revealed. Thus, while Christ could return in any generation, and every generation does well to be prepared to endure the Great Tribulation, when the Antichrist is at last revealed, our Lord's return is not imminent in the sense that it could happen at any moment. However, the singular event that indicates his return has become imminent is the abomination of desolation that ushers in the Great Tribulation. And if in God's sovereignty... We are ones who should live to see these great and terrible days come upon the earth. Let us be comforted in the knowledge of our Lord's soon return. And by his words to us in Luke 21:28 where he declares, "Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near." Well, as we have considered this morning these marvelous truths regarding the Lord's return and rapture, let us now consider how we should live in light of them through our application, which is this. Prepare for hatred and suffering as we await our Master's return. And for our application, let's turn now to John 15. John 15, verses 18 through 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will also keep yours." Now, as we saw today, the time leading up to the Lord's return will involve great tribulation, days in which believers are hated and put to death for the name of Christ. However, while the persecution of those days will surely be greater than ever before, exceedingly great persecution for the name of Christ is a reality for many saints around the world, even today, in accord with the promise here, that we read in John 15. Now, ultimately, the world's hatred for believers is really an expression of its hatred for Christ and of its hatred for his word. They hate us because he has chosen us out of the world. We are not of it. We are not like them. We are like them in that we are fallen, but we have been chosen out of them. We have been born again. We are sons of the Most High God. And therefore, the world hates us. And indeed, this vitriol against God's word and against his son and against his people is probably no better demonstrated than it is in Acts 7, where the crowd to which Stephen preached was so enraged by his message that they gnashed their teeth at him and immediately stoned him to death. Now, Stephen's account, as well as that of the countless martyrs throughout church history, demonstrate that the message we've been called to proclaim, to repent and believe on Christ in light of God's sure and coming judgment, is a message of offense. Indeed, proclaiming these things enrages the world and quite often leads to persecution in various forms and degrees. Now, because of this, it's really not surprising that the message of most churches today focuses almost exclusively on God's love and his grace, speaking much about the wonderful plan he supposedly has for everybody's life, rather than exhorting the world to repent and believe on Christ to be saved from the wrath of God. Now, the next time we're in this series, we're going uh, to dig into these matters more fully as we explore the Great Commission. However, for our purposes today, let us remember that our Lord was finally put to death, not for what he did, but instead for what he said. And while many flocked to his miraculous works, his difficult words are what eventually separated those who followed him only for a little while from those who followed him to the end. Therefore, may we be ones who boldly and faithfully proclaim God's word and endure well the world's hatred for doing so as we await our Lord's return. As we do, let us remember his promise to us in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, where he declares... Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Amen? Amen. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these great truths regarding the return of Christ and our being gathered together to him. And Lord, we pray that whatever time you have ordained for us upon this earth, that you would cause us to be faithful to the calling we have to proclaim the whole counsel of God at the very ends of the earth, and that through doing so, Lord, many would be revealed as your sons, that many would repent and believe in Christ. And Lord, whether our proclamation of your word is met with repentance or resistance, let us be faithful in the work at hand. Lord, loving you and loving others through doing so, knowing that you are glorified in these things. And Lord, we do look forward to the day of your coming. May you cause us to remain faithful every day until then. And may we soon, very soon, see Christ in the sky and be gathered together to him. And we ask this in his name and for your glory. Amen.